0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org
1: and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the history of rock music, has a song ever opened stronger than this? generals
0: gathered in their masses just like witches at black masses.
1: It's War Pigs, the first track on Paranoid, Black Sabbath's breakthrough album.
0: The sorcerer of Death construction.
1: In the fields of What makes it great? I mean, Ozzy Osbourne's voice, which sounds like it's coming from some strange, surreal past. Tony Iommi's guitar. Sounds like, I don't know, the skeleton of a freight train. Bill Ward's drums, which just hit you like a ton of bricks. And of course, on bass, my guest, Geezer Butler. Patient zero for heavy metal bass riffs. Subtle, deep, and pounding. But here's the thing, Butler isn't just holding down the low end on War Pigs. He also helped write the song. He wrote or co-wrote so many of Sabbath's greatest tunes: Iron Man, Paranoid, The Wizard, After Forever. Now Butler has a memoir. It's called Into the Void: From Birth to Black Sabbath and Beyond. It's about his childhood in Birmingham and about, of course, the story of Sabbath. It's also one of those books where you can basically open to any page and something completely crazy is happening that you can't wait to turn over your shoulder and tell somebody about. Before we get into my interview with Geezer Butler, let's hear a bit of another Sabbath classic, Paranoid. Geezer Butler, welcome to Bullseye. I am so happy to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I, I got the impression from reading your book that in your, let's call it adolescence, young adulthood, everyone was wearing a different kind of outfit and beating each other up. Like that is the, like your, your older brother was a teddy boy who kept razors in his coat lapel. Can you tell me a little bit about about what was going on when you were a kid?
0: Well, it wasn't long after the war and uh, where where my family was from. It was like there was still lots of bombed out buildings and stuff. Um, Food was still rationed. And I had three brothers, two of them were in the army on national service and the other one, as you say, was a teddy boy who used to terrorise everyone with his razor blades and his lapels and flick knives and coshes and all that kind of stuff. So it was quite uh, – and there was a lot of weaponry left over from World War Two because uh, people were afraid of being invaded by Germany. So each house had like – lots of air rifles. We even had a revolver in our house and uh, lots of weapons and bayonets and stuff like
1: that. So a lot of nice things for a kid to play with. You were kind of the star student of your family. W- what did that mean practically?
0: I was the first one to pass all the uh, exams at school and I, I was training to be an accountant, funnily enough. Um, I had the qualifications. And when I was 16, it was, I had the, I, the choice was either to stay on at school for an extra two years to get your A-levels, which meant you could go to university, or you could leave and get a job. So I left and got a job when I was 16 and because I needed the money. Nobody had any money, so I needed the money. So rather than wait a couple of years and go to university, I went out and got a job, which I hated. And it was a custom works accountant. It was like one of the worst jobs, worst times of my life, because rather than teaching me how to uh, be an accountant, they were sending me to get the newspapers and down the shop to get the cigarettes and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really learn anything.
1: You were already like a long-haired dude by then, right? Yeah, yeah. They used to call me Tarzan at school. Why did you choose to grow out your hair, given that you probably knew it would lead to you getting called Tarzan? Well, it was uh, when
0: the Beatles came along. Like, because before that, everybody was like, um, like a rock like Elvis kind of hairstyles, you know, sw- swept back with a quiff and a, a da back. It was just my generation when the da is
1: a duck's rear.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> When the Beatles came along, they combed the hair forward rather than have it back in a quiff. and So, that I, I, of course, I rushed out and had my hair done like the Beatles. And then the Stones came along. I had even longer hair. So then I started doing that. And then um, it's just like a, a thing then to have the longest hair of anybody, like of all my friends and stuff. And it was like, who had the longest
1: hair wins kind of thing. How long did you play a guitar that had two strings? (laughs) Uh, The first one. (laughs) First of all, let's just acknowledge there were multiple, there was a guitar and a bass guitar with two strings.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The first first acoustic guitar I got for, uh, my brother bought it for me for 50 pence, which is like about 75 cents. And it had two strings. And of course I couldn't afford the rest of the strings. But it took me about a year until when until I discovered that if you put your finger on the string on the fretboard, <laughs> it changed the note, <laughs> and it was like, this is now I know how people make music, and uh, so I used to play all the Beatles melodies on these two strings, and then I got quite good at doing that. And my other brother said uh, he, he realised that I was really into it, and he gave me enough money to go and buy a. A guitar with six strings on it, so I could play rhythm guitar. After that, I used to play all
1: the Beatles stuff. I mean, that's triple the strings. That's two hundred percent more strings. A lot of possibilities there.
0: Yeah, and then I run out. And uh, everybody used to uh, learn guitar by this uh, Bert Whedon's Playing a Day book, and it was like a couple of shillings. Even Eric, Eric Clapton learned from this book. And uh, ev- anybody that wanted to play guitar, she couldn't afford. Uh, tutors or anything like that, so you had to teach yourself from this book and it just showed you all the chord positions and stuff like that, and uh, of course, I was determined to learn guitar at the time, and um, I used to study this book well, every day.
1: I don't think that I could imagine as a person born in nineteen eighty one what the Beatles showing up meant. Like, if you were a kid or a teenager, when the Beatles showed up on television, like, how transformative that must have been for your idea of what pop music could be?
0: Well, up until the Beatles, all the uh, music was sort of coming over from America, Elvis and Buddy Holly and uh, Eddie Cochran, all that kind of stuff. And the only English music was people copying the American stuff. And they used to do uh, like cover versions of American singles and all that kind of thing, and and it wasn't it wasn't played on the radio. You'd have to get this uh, like bootleg radio station called Radio Luxembourg, which is based in Europe. That used to, uh, if you could find it on your radio, that's what you'd listen to. And
1: um, because the BBC was playing corny music for parents, BBC
0: was horrible. Depressing music. No rock and roll or anything like that. Just, uh, I think they played rock and roll on a Saturday morning once a week. The rest of the time it was was like poker music and accordion stuff and Scottish dances and all that kind of stuff, which is totally depressing. And then um, this one night I was listening to Luxembourg and this song came on. It was The Beatles and it just like, it was like being struck by lightning. It was incredible uh, totally different. And, um, from that moment on, I used to listen to uh, the radio every night, just waiting for the Beatles to come on.
1: One of the things that you describe in the book is that you had heard the Beatles on the radio, but you had to wait to figure out what they were. I mean, like, as you say, you had to wait until there was a newspaper article about them to have any idea what this lightning bolt was.
0: Yeah, the first time was uh, my uh, sister was on holiday in Blackpool uh, on a couple of days. She she went up to Blackpool, which is a seaside place in England. uh, And she sent me this postcard of the Beatles. And that was the first time I'd seen them. I think Please Please Me had just come out, the Beatles song. And of course that went into, got to number one cause the Beatles were all over the newspapers then. And then they started getting on TV shows and stuff. And it was, that was like, not only the music was the music incredible, but the way they dressed and the way they looked was totally revolutionary at the time.
1: Was there a point where you found yourself thinking, maybe I could be a professional musician?
0: As soon as I saw the Beatles, that's what I wanted to be. I just didn't want to go to a factory or an office or anything like that for the rest of my life. And I, I, and I just knew that there was something I had to do in life, and it wasn't going to uh, normal in a normal job. As soon as I got a, a six string guitar, <laughs> that was that was it. It was like uh, I had to uh, be good enough to make music uh, for my career.
1: Did that seem like a real possibility? Like, did you know people who were professional entertainers at all? or
0: No, not at all. Um, it was just one of those things where you, sort of, you, you have it in your sights, and you'd, it's like tunnel vision. That's what you want to do. And until you've done it, nothing else matters. And uh, that's all I could think. I was like, I wanted to be a musician, and that's where I'm going to be. When
1: did you switch to bass?
0: When I was in a band with Ozzy called the Rare Breed, and I was still playing rhythm guitar. And the lead guitarist and the drummer and the bass player in, in the Rare Breed all had like really good jobs with futures. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'd just been fired from my job, and I just didn't want to go back to that kind of life. And me and Ozzy uh, one day, just says uh, to the others, we want to go do this full-time. And they says, well, we're not going to give up our jobs. So me and Ozzy uh, formed a band ourselves, and a, there was a, another bass player and another guitarist, and the bass player sort of dropped out. So Ozzy said, uh, I know a, we needed a drummer at the time because we had a guitarist, a bass player, me on rhythm guitar, Ozzy singing, and Ozzy said, well, I know a uh, a, a drummer, and he's, he lives just around the corner from where you live, so we went round to uh, Tony Iommi's house to see um, this drummer, because it was Tony Iommi's drummer, and he was at the house at the time, and he came. Uh, he asked us what kind of music we were playing. We said, you know, blues, and soul, and that kind of stuff, And he says, well, I'll give it a go, but Tony's got to come with us. And so Tony came with us, which meant that there was three guitarists then. So I said, okay, I'm just going to play bass. And uh, that's how it came about.
1: I mean, who knew that your two-string guitar playing experience would come so distinctly in handy when you switched instruments?
0: Yeah, especially when the first bass that I had only had two strings. (laughs) and Because we were playing 12-bar blues, it it was like it didn't really matter because you only only really need two strings anyway to play 12-bar blues. And then after our first uh, gigs, I finally uh, swapped my uh, rhythm guitar for a bass guitar with, with four strings.
1: We've got more to get into with Geezer Butler. When we come back, he will talk about what it was like writing lyrics for Ozzy Osbourne to sing. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Geezer Butler of Black Sabbath. Let's talk about Ozzy Osbourne for a second, because you describe meeting him through a newspaper ad and from your description, and I can only take this literally, but you can clarify if you'd like, he was a skinhead uh, walking a shoe on a leash like it was a dog. Yeah. That's actually that's just literal description of what he looked like when you met him.
0: Absolutely, yeah, with the chimney brush over his shoulder, <laughs> and his dad's uh, working gown on, and no and no
1: shoes. Right, no for, shoes even in the winter.
0: No, he couldn't afford them, and it, he only lived like literally three streets away from me. So he walked, came around to the house, and uh, he knocked on the door, and my brother cut. My brother said to me, uh, there's something at the door for you. I said, what do you mean, something? And he says, you'll see. And I opened the front door, and there was Ozzy with his mental stuff on.
1: What did you think of it? Like, did you think, well, no one else wants to be in a band with me right now? Or did you think, oh, yeah, this is wild. I'm in for this.
0: Yeah, he was – after I'd stopped laughing – (laughs) He asked what kind of music, and uh, I told him what we were doing, what I'd wanted to do. Um, And he says, yeah, I'll give it a go. But the main thing that sold me on him, he had his own PA system, which was like gold dust back then.
1: I mean, you didn't even have all your guitar strings, so somebody having something to plug into a wall was a big deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, that, that sealed the deal, that he had his own PA
1: Did you figure out with time what was going on with this man you had met who had a chimney brush and no shoes on? (laughs) I
0: don't think anybody's ever figured Ozzy out.
1: He um, seems to have a winning attitude about it. He does, yeah. He'll do
0: anything to make you laugh. So, uh, you know, and just his attitude just like made me, it just really makes you laugh. And um, it, it was. He said, uh, "Whatever songs you do, I'll, I'll learn them, and and I'll grow my hair." And that was it.
1: I, I like that. The one qualification that was non-negotiable, besides must bring own speakers, was uh, yeah, this skinhead thing's not going to work.
0: No, and when I mentioned it, he says, well, I can easily grow my hair. And what I didn't know at the time is he'd just come out of prison. So, uh, you know, I think that was, he had to shave his head anyway to get into prison.
1: There was a lot, there was a lot of blues rock going around England in various forms when um, that band and its successor, Earth, were uh, getting started. Um. None of that blues rock really sounds like Black Sabbath, particularly. So at what point do you think the idea of we are going to play R&B covers or maybe, you know, sound like Eric Clapton changed into something that was weirder and heavier and more like black sabbath well at that particular time uh there was hundreds of
0: bands going around and they were either playing soul music or they were playing blues and tony got a job with um jethro tull ian anderson we did a gig with uh, Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson sort of, we saw him coming out into the audience and, and was mesmerized with Tony Iommi and I thought uh, that's a bit strange He's like not looking at the rest of the band just looking at Tony Iommi, Ian Anderson and
1: um, and they were already, I mean they already had hit records so it was oh, oh, not nothing yeah. to get a job in that band
0: oh, absolutely and um, they were like on the verge of the first American tour, which was like the the Holy Grail for a band in England at the time. And then after the show, uh, Ian Anderson asked Tony if he could have a word with him, and he spoke to him. And then on the on the way uh, back home, <clears throat> Tony says, Jethro Tulliver, I mean, Ian Anderson has asked me to join Jethro Tull. So he went and did his, he went down to London, and for some reason he didn't want, he didn't like people telling him what to play, Tony, because he's, uh, you know, he's very a man of his own. Um, he's very set in his ways. So he came back and says, OK, we can't, we got to start writing our own music. That's the only way we're going to get anywhere. Because, you know, it was, we were like one of 100,000 blues bands and so we said, uh, yeah, you know, we realized that to, to get anywhere, we've got to re- seriously start writing music, our own stuff. And we wrote Wicked World was the first song that we wrote. Yeah. followed by the song Black Sabbath. Um, Once we had those two in the bag, that gave us the confidence to carry on writing.
1: Did Black Sabbath, when you wrote it, sound like Black Sabbath on the record?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think there was an extra um, verse on the, uh, the original version that was cut out for the album.
1: Let's hear a little bit of it. What was it like when you played those songs in places where people were, you know, being second rate Eric Claptons?
0: Well, the first few gigs, once we'd, uh, people were just like, usually in like little clubs and bars, mainly pubs and stuff. And, I always remember when we wrote the, that song, Black Sabbath, we were still a blues band. And that night we had uh, a gig at this uh, hole Blues Club in Staffordshire in England. And we went on and we played the usual 12-bar stuff. And people didn't, you know, they'd heard us like 10 times before, didn't really take much notice of us. And we said, uh, let's play that song that we wrote today and see what happens. And we played Black Sabbath, and the whole place just stood still and stopped talking. And they were just amazed. And they're like, We finished the song. We thought, uh, Why has everybody gone quiet? And uh, we finished the song, and the whole place just erupted in in applause. And we thought,
1: Yes, here we come. (laughs) (laughs) You went through this kind of crucible playing at the legendary club, the, the star club in Hamburg, Germany, which, you know, had famously been the, the, uh, sort of the birthplace of the Beatles in a way. And I really love a Jerry Lee Lewis live album that was recorded there in the sixties. You know what I mean? And, uh, and you were playing like what, six, seven shows a day something like that seven 45 minute shows was there like a 10 a.m show (laughs) like (laughs) how do you even fit that many in and have time to eat and go to the bathroom well we didn't eat much um
0: i think we started at four in the afternoon
1: and just went until two
0: yeah and i mean by this time that the the uh, star club had like had its like greatest days and they were well gone so we used to get like the odd soldier uh, sailor would come in because it was in Hamburg which is a big uh, port there and we'd be playing our sets and you'd get like a couple of drunken sailors would come in and then walk out again some prostitutes because it was in the red light district so you get some prostitutes that come in and see if they could pick somebody up and it was like uh, it was the perfect place to rehearse because nobody was taking any notice of us they didn't care what we were playing so we just thought uh we've got to fill in uh seven 45 minutes spots so let's just make stuff up and i think that's where most of the first
1: and second album ideas came from did you expect when your first album came out that it would be celebrated or did you know that it was wrong for what the music press was then
0: We were just happy to get an album out because up until then, I mean, my parents, I think most of our parents thought we were just wasting our time. And once we had the album recorded and we had something to take home to show our parents, it's like, oh, look, we've actually done something. And uh, they sort of, oh, yeah. And then when it got in the charts, we didn't think that it was going to be. We were just happy to have an album done so that we could listen to our own music, because we didn't have tape recorders back then or anything like that, so we'd never heard ourselves until we'd done the album. And, um, I mean, literally, that was the first time we'd heard ourselves. And it was, it was just, you know, a, pr- a proud moment for us. We just thought, it was, it was, we've done what we set out to do. Now let's uh, see what happens. Um, none, none of us expected it to go sell millions like it did, or sell, didn't think it would sell thousands even for a few hundred maybe.
1: I really enjoyed the parts of your book where you described, um, writing lyrics for the band and especially writing lyrics for the band sort of with Ozzy Osbourne. And, you know, you were writing the bulk of the lyrics, but it was a sort of collaboration. It seems like from reading the book that involved him singing whatever came to his head in scratch tracks and you just finding something that meant something to you in that.
0: Yeah, Ozzy always came up with, I couldn't write vocal lines. I I wouldn't even know how to begin. But so Ozzy would come up with the melody and then um, it was up to me to write the lyrics for him. And occasionally he'd come up with like a word that would spark my imagination. Like Iron Man, for instance, even though the song wasn't doesn't mention Iron Man, but one of the first uh, lyrics that he came up with was was Iron Man, and I just thought, and he's not even singing that in the song, and so I thought I'll base it, make the song sound like an Iron Man.
1: What did that mean to you at the time?
0: It was just a, a way of getting all my frustrations, all my depression, everything out in lyrics. Uh, you know, there was a lot of anger built up in me from the way I'd been treated trying to get a job everywhere, and people didn't believe, had absolutely no belief in me. And being able to write lyrics was incredible, it's my release.
1: have to go to a quick break more with geezer butler of black sabbath when we return stay with us it's bullseye from MaximumFun.org and npr oh Russ. hey, yeah hey. oh i'm glad i found you in line these clouds are really freaking me out i hate having to stand in line and boy what a line these giraffes do not smell good no they do not and they have such short necks but i'm hearing we need to get on this we arc. gotta get on the ark it yeah. is about to rain god is about to destroy humanity Hey, oh sorry, sorry, sorry. Are you Noah? Yeah, I know we look like humans, but we're actually <laughs> yes, we're <totally>. podcasters. <laughs> we are podcasters, so it's different. Have you heard of Ono Ross and Kerry? We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal, stuff like that. <laughs> and you have a boat and say the world's gonna end, so it seemed like something for us to check out. We would love to be on the boat. We came two by two. What do you think? Ono Ross and Kerry Available on maximumfun.org. <laughs> Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Geezer Butler. He was the bassist for Black Sabbath, pioneers of heavy metal, and one of the greatest rock bands of all time. He has a new memoir. It's called Into the Void From Birth to Black Sabbath and Beyond. Butler also wrote or co wrote many of Sabbath's biggest hits, like Paranoid, Iron Man, and this one, After Forever. You mentioned your depression. You had done self-harm as a young person. You gave it up when you got some real blood out of yourself and got creeped out. But you had, you had s- struggled with really serious depression. And this was at a time when that was not understood as a real medical problem. And I wonder what it was like to be in a band that required you to, you know, plunge forward so intensely and continuously when you struggled with depressions that made it hard to, you know, get out of bed.
0: Well, it wasn't depressed. I wasn't depressed all the time. Just the occasional, uh, bout would come on me and, um. I always remember going to the, when it was, at first, when it was getting really bad. And back then, nobody ever said anything about depression or anything like that. And people were terrified to mention that that you might be depressed because you think, because you automatically thought you were going to be taken away to a mental hospital and be locked away forever. So you couldn't talk about it to people in case that happened. One day I got a really bad bout of depression and I went to the doctor and um, he said, Oh, go down to the pub and have a couple of pints or take the dog for a walk or something. You'll be all right. And it was like, no, I'm not going to be all right. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work like that. And that kept happening. <clears throat> and it wasn't until um, I think in the 1990s, I was living in St. Louis at the time and I went, I was like I had a, break, a bit of a nervous breakdown, and I went to the doc, this doctor, my usual doctor, and I just explained everything to him. and He told me that I was de- clinically depressed, and he put me on Prozac. and After like six weeks, I finally came out of the depression, and I thought, "Oh yeah, this is what I'm supposed to feel like." And it, it, ever since that, I've been okay.
1: That must have been. An extraordinary experience to have that far into your life. It was, um, <clears throat> as you couldn't talk about it. And when I did get depression,
0: people used to think I was moody and miserable, and you know they'd be going, "Well, what's the matter with you? What's happened to you?" And, and no, nothing bad had happened, so they were saying, "You got load, you know, you got all the money you want, you got your house, you got your cars and everything. What's wrong with you? cheer up?" And they couldn't understand that it's nothing like that. You know, you can have everything you can possibly want in the world, but if you, when, when you get into those dark, depressing days, nothing matters. All you think about is like, uh, we'll so sort i of just end it or what? And luckily I used to come out of it.
1: I mean, I can imagine that having the experience of treating your depression successfully must have changed the way that you thought about your past like having that understanding of what was going on must have been remarkable yeah
0: it makes you feel like you know going back to people and saying oh sorry i wasn't miserable at the time i was going through a bad patch
1: i mean did you feel shame about had you felt shame about the way that you had felt and behaved when you were depressed
0: um not really shame i just thought uh I wish people could have understand that I wasn't miserable at the time. Because, you know, if you're a rock star or whatever, if you're in a band, you're supposed to be this happy person and you're up all the time and everything is available to you and you can do this, you can do that. And uh, and you're not supposed to get depressed if you're a rock star and all that kind of thing. And um, it was just hard coming to terms with it and admitting that's where it was. And... It was just the the occasional thing. I wasn't depressed all the time or anything like that. It's just that when I'd get into those black holes, I just couldn't get out of it. And it wasn't until it was diagnosed that I finally
1: found a way out of it. Geezer, there are 20 trillion delightful anecdotes in your book. Like, literally every other page just has an offhand mention of something that we could spend 15 minutes talking about on this show right now, but there's just one that I wrote down, which was that on your first tour of America, you visited the set of Bonanza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so maybe you could share how you came to visit the set of Bonanza. <laughs> well, Bonanza was,
0: like massive in England at the time. And my dad absolutely loved Westerns. He he loved them. And uh, and Bonanza was like his favorite TV show. So uh, we all used to watch Bonanza because, you know, if my dad was watching it, then you had to watch it kind of thing. And I not really liked it. And so when we got to America, we went to, because uh, we were assigned to Warner Brothers, who were the, uh, who, did Bonanza over here? And um, we went to, uh, we visited Frank Sinatra's office at Reprise and they gave us these briefcases full of Warner Brothers albums. And they said to us, uh, uh, we thought Bonanza was being filmed at the moment. Do you want to come down and watch it being filmed? I went, mean, yes! <laughs> <laughs> And, and we did. We went down and watched uh, part of it being filmed. And um, the, the, I always remember little Joe, who was supposed to be—I always thought he was l- like literally little—and he was like about six foot six, towered over us. And I said to them, "God knows what how big Hoss must be then." <laughs> but it was amazing. It was just like amazing. It's like you know. Going to heaven, kind of thing, when you just come from England, and you see, you're actually watching one of your favorite TV shows being filmed. It's like, We are not worthy.
1: <laughs> I think it's such a wonderful thing. I would have loved for you guys to have, you know, maybe stolen from out some outfits from Wardrobe and switched <laughs> up the look a little bit, something like that. <laughs> Did you get to tell your parents which episode you saw?
0: I'm sure I told my dad, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what, because they didn't tell you what opposite, uh, what episode it was. So uh, I'm not, he probably, he obviously seen it. But
1: it's like the time you brought home a record album, <clears throat> the time that you were first on top of the pops, and uh, the time you went to the set of Bonanza are the things that prove prove to your parents that this is a real job in a real life
0: <laughs> yeah i think the bonanza episode definitely uh got my dad's 100 percent
1: approval well i'm so grateful for your time and your music and i just i i can't tell you how much i enjoyed reading the book there's Just something delightful on every other page and um, a lot of fascinating stuff about how this incredible art was made. So uh, thank you for taking the time to be on the show.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Geezer Butler. His new book is called Into the Void, From Birth to Black Sabbath and Beyond. Let's go out on another classic Sabbath track with lyrics by Geezer, Tomorrow's Dream. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Greater Los Angeles, California. But we're going into the office too. When I was last in the office on Sunday night to record my comedy show Jordan Jesse Go, the Levitt Pavilion in MacArthur Park was jamming, and the whole, all the windows, everything. Everything in our office was shaking with uh, tuba sounds from a banda band. If you're in L.A., go go watch those uh, fun MacArthur Park Levin Pavilion concerts. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by the Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to the Go Team. Thanks to Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Follow us. We share our interviews there. I hope that you will share our interviews with uh, somebody you know who's a, a metal head or loves crazy TV shows or rap music or and just is interested in the world. Please share our interviews. Okay, I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.